This is the seventh day of August, 2017. Twelve years ago today, my brother John Campbell passed away. He left us twelve years ago today. His funeral was held um, several days later in the Free Methodist Church on St. Joseph Island on the 11th day of uh, August of that year, 2005. I'd been asked if I would uh, present a eulogy during that service, which I did. And my purpose is today is to read to you what I said then as we remember John. That was a Sunday afternoon, late afternoon. My mother and I went to the city of Sault Ste. Marie from St. Joseph Island. And we entered the hospital room. It was obvious that John saw us come in. His eyes were fixed on the door as I brought his mother into the room. Mom went over to his left side as he was kind of propped up on several pillows in his bed. Mom went to his left side and I went to his right side. And we took his hands on either side and we got down very close to him. It was only a few minutes in that way until John, his spirit left his body. And uh, he left us. And so then a few days later, we had this funeral service at the Free Methodist Church on St. Joseph Island. Let me read this as I presented it on that day. I have a couple of notes at the top of the page. And these notes were largely for the people there present, but also for myself. And I said, I will not preach to you. I'm inviting everyone to be comfortable and relax. I'm going to be honest with you. I must be honest. And then I began the presentation. John was born on December the 3rd, 1938, the eldest of three sons for Frank and Dorothy. Although his arrival was lovingly anticipated and prepared for, it was a difficult birth for both mother and son. Great effort was required by his mother to bring him forth and provide his nourishment during those cold winter months in the K-Line cabin. She would hold him and talk to him as only she could. And the invisible and enduring bond between mother and son was solidly forged. She could not say John while talking to him. Somehow John was a man's name, not suitable for this little baby boy. And so she called him Manzi, my little Manzi. He listened and loved the sound of speaking voices. I know this because at the tender age of ten months, while visiting Charlie and Anna Brown, a small kitten ran out from their barn, and Mum said, John, look at the pretty kitty. And John said, clear as a bell, pretty kitty. They went in to visit Charlie and Anna, and while Charlie gathered John onto his knee, an amazed mother related the story of the kitty. And Charlie Brown, he looked, his name actually was Charlie Brown, he looked down at John and said, Well, well, well. And John replied, Well, well, well. And he continued to speak, not in baby talk, but in fully functional, articulate speech. John was unique from the beginning, and everyone knew it. He was also difficult to understand and fully comprehend because of his complexity and apparent contradictions. Why would a young boy whose father was six foot one aspire to grow as big as Uncle Reg Hodden, who struggled for five foot eight? That didn't appear to make much sense. 
unless you knew John, and very few did. Big to John was not defined in feet and inches. It was more a matter of sound and the projection of personality. Uncle Reg was big in sound and personality, and young John aspired to be big in sound and personality, and he did. John was very social and very much a loner. He loved to think and enjoyed his own company while sifting, weighing, and comparing ideas. To John, thoughts and ideas were simply yet unspoken words, and he developed a profoundly large internal library of them during all those many hours and days of solitary thinking. Many have marveled, how could John provide a daily radio commentary for several years and continue routinely to come up with something fresh and stimulating? My answer is, he ran the issues through that internal library of his, and voila, the words came forth in articulate, fully functional speech. As much as John was comfortable alone, he was also completely at ease in social engagement. Last winter, John and I drove Dad to a medical appointment. While we waited in the hall, a very tall man emerged from a doctor's office. Neither of us knew him. Without hesitation, John ventured forth. How tall are you? Six eight was the immediate easy response, as if he had known John for years. Were you a center? John asked, somehow knowing that this man had been a basketball player and he could go directly to the question of position. I played semi-pro in Toronto for a number of years, was the offered response. It lasted perhaps thirty seconds, and yet the conversation was revealing, and the atmosphere had the relaxed ease of a living room chat with feet up on the footstool. John was unique from the beginning, and everyone knew it. If I ask you to define this word for me, John, we would all be amazed at the variety of response. Some of us would say he was dad, son, brother, husband, cousin, uncle, my friend. John was a student in Lorne Park College being prepared for possible full-time denominational service. I have his book on systematic theology from that time. I have his inked-in comments and questions in the margins. Any teacher might be excused for saying, why does he ask those most difficult questions? And why can he not be satisfied completely with our answers? Some would define John as a sports broadcaster, reporter in radio, television and print media. If Don Coulter, retired city police officer, were here, he would remember a 4 a.m. call in 1964 to investigate rifle shots heard in the area of Queen and Elgin Streets in the city of Sault Ste. Marie. Rushing to the scene in the old paddy wagon, Don and his partner were astonished to see a deserted street with the exception of two young men facing each other at a distance of about 60 feet. One was hurling a fastball in the classic underhand whip motion, and the other was receiving it in the big oversized catcher's mitt. The sound of the ball striking glove was reverberating in the empty street with sharp reports resembling rifle fire. John, by then an accomplished fastball pitcher, was throwing and Greg Douglas was receiving. 
Others would better remember John as a radio news reporter and broadcaster, and perhaps sometimes even a shaper of local political and civic affairs. May I quickly add to this taxi driver, life insurance salesman, oil truck operator? The enigma of John can be illustrated by the image of him emerging from the oil tanker, dressed in grease-marked overalls which were unable to completely hide his white shirt and tie. In January 1977, John wanted to return to the Sioux and continue his radio career. He was working for CKFM in Toronto, then the top FM radio station in Canada. His resume to Russ Hilderley is better described as a small book. In it, John writes, This brief contains good news. If you look hard enough, you can always find bad news. But it's very difficult to find in this book. And he concludes by saying, I feel it is a very exciting time to be alive. As a boy and a young man, everyone knew John was a person with talent and exceptional calling. But what was it really? How could we nurture, encourage, and guide what we were uncertain of? Wisdom would look at that 1977 resume and say, There is a talented, energetic man who is restless. Is it restlessness born of ambition? Or is it explained by something else? Do you remember the classic novel written in 1938? By the way, 1938 was the year of John's birth. And that book was called Lassie Come Home. Lassie was sold by a Yorkshire, England family during economic hardships to a wealthy duke, separated from the boy she loved and that loved her. And she was taken to Scotland. Lassie escapes and begins a 1,000-mile journey home. She crosses rivers and overcomes many natural and human obstacles in her journey. On several occasions, she is cared for by kind and loving people and nursed back to health and strength. But even then, the restlessness returns, especially nearing the four o'clock in the afternoon, the time that she would faithfully meet her beloved boy on his way home from school. And when she finally did arrive at her old familiar place and her beloved boy saw her, he did not recognize her because of the toll of the journey on her physical appearance, but she made it all the way home. St. Augustine writes as follows, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. John was restless. Even though he would experience seasons of calm satisfaction, the four o'clock in the afternoon phenomena would surely return. I love my brother. I would not seek to diminish his considerable accomplishments, but I must agree with the truth and say that John's highest and ultimate calling during his life was not reached. John has left something of great value to all of us. To me, he has entrusted some of his closing thoughts and writings. He said, I may not be able to write all my thoughts in full detail, but if I can provide the core idea, I believe you can flesh it out for me. I agreed with him. These were his words to me. I have taken the way of Esau very often in my life. The story of Esau is found in Genesis chapter 25. 
Esau was the firstborn son, and as such would possess the substantial rights inherited by the firstborn. One day Esau came in from the field, famished with hunger, and his brother Jacob was cooking a fine lentil stew. Esau was so eager to satisfy his hunger that he agreed to transfer all his future firstborn rights to his brother Jacob in return for the instant gratification provided by the stew. Esau would later greatly regret this decision, but it was one of those really big ones that cannot be undone. John was identifying with Esau and admitting that he had often relinquished a greater good by preferring immediate self-gratification. Time, like other precious commodities, increases in value as it shrinks in quantity. And in those final three months, the Campbell comment offered a different emphasis. On June 9th, at 3.40 a.m., John wrote, The last half hour has been my morning inspirational. And then he wrote this, Here's an idea for a TV talk show, Peace in the Valley. He continued, the flow in me of a spirit of repentance has yielded the inspiration for the program outlined on previous pages. Repentance equals the replanting of the mind. It is the tilling of good but neglected soil and reclaiming the inner garden of mind, spirit, and soul. The new think, he wrote, is really the old, old story of Jesus. But the story has been obfuscated in this little corner of the world called Canada. The obfuscation occurred on my watch from 1956 to 1996. Forty years of a wilderness driven by the destroyer overcoming us. Now it's time to turn the table, to get right, to tell the truth, to heal and not hurt, to honor our Creator. It is still called today. There is still time to get ready. On June 10th, John writes in anticipation of the 7.30 a.m. hour, and he wrote this, By then Harold may even be awake and banging. That banging of doors and pots is a wonderful sound. On May 27th, the journal shows this entry, Prepare to meet your God has always been wise. One such as I who would ask for more time, here, in the Vale of Tears 1. Today commits with willing, volition, total commitment to the Lord's project. The complete revelation about Jesus, the Word, and the subsequent restoration of all things. I am in the Lord's hands in all. Signed, this day, Friday, May 27, 2005. And he signed his name. On May the 28th, John wrote, there is much about my current experience that is not a nightmare at all. I'm not resentful. I'm glad I did not know any of this in advance at a conscious level. But I'm not resentful as the mystery of it all unfolds. John displayed remarkable mental acuity to the very end of the journey. Although he was being attacked in the very core of his pride and power, his brain and his voice, he never surrendered them. He was able to receive the most intimate care for his person with deep gratitude. He did not shrink from prayer. 
It didn't matter who might overhear. The Lord's Prayer was especially comforting, and he would spontaneously begin this prayer at any moment and then apologize for not having the proper sequence. On one of those closing days, I suggested to John that understanding the elements of the Lord's Prayer was even more important than being able to flawlessly speak it. We talked it through line by line, and he was fully apprehending it in the moment. His capacity for depth of thought and clear analysis remained visible through the fog of disease to the very end. I'm reminded of King David's comment following the death of a beloved child. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, he said, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. The majority of the hymns we are singing today are those referenced by John in his closing journal. And I close with this one. Abide with Me, written by Henry Light in 1847. Light was inspired to write this hymn as he was dying of tuberculosis. He finished it the Sunday he gave his farewell sermon in the Paris he served so many years, and the next day he left for Italy to regain his health. He didn't make it, though. He died in Nice, France, three weeks after writing these words. And here is an excerpt from his farewell sermon. O brethren, I stand here among you today as alive from the dead, if I may hope to impress it upon you, and induce you to prepare for that solemn hour which must come to all by a timely acquaintance with the death of Christ. Mrs. Monk, who was a secretary, described the setting of the writing of this hymn. And she writes as follows, This tune was written at a time of great sorrow when together we watched as we did daily the glories of the setting sun. And as the last golden ray faded, he took some paper and penciled that tune which has gone over all the earth. Abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Thou on my head in early youth did smile, and though rebellious and perverse meanwhile, thou hast not left me, oft as I left thee. On to the close, O Lord, abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. When considering with me his response to the challenges of the passage of the night, often in the night John would have difficulties and challenges with the darkness and the loneliness. And so in considering this, John said to me that he had decided that what he would say at these times, during these times. And he said to me, I will say this, I will go with God. And just at that moment in our conversation, his doctor, Dr. Keith, entered the room and began to discuss with John details about, about his condition. And his condition was not a cheery subject at the time. And John's response to Dr. Keith was, I will go with God. It made perfect sense to me in light of our conversation before Dr. Keith entered the room. 
But Dr. Keith looked somewhat perplexed by this statement, and again, as had occurred often throughout John's life, this misunderstanding of John continued right to the very end. Dr. Keith did not understand, although a very learned man and very helpful to John, he did not understand what John was saying when he said, I will go with God. Go with God, my brother, and we will see you in the morning over there.